0: The tour content from now through Pesach has been sponsored by the Kofsky family in loving memory of Adira, who loved big ideas and asking big questions. Hello, I'm Rabbi Match Neweis, and this is the Stoic Jew Podcast, where we explore the relationship between Judaism and Stoicism. Today's reading is from Epictetus Discourses, Book Two, and it's an excerpt from Chapter 18. In the first place, do not allow yourself to be carried away by the intensity of your impression, but say, Impression, wait for me a little. Let me see what you are and what you represent. Let me test you. Then afterwards, do not allow it to draw you on by picturing what may come next, for if you do, it will lead you wherever it pleases. But rather, you should introduce some fair and noble impression to replace it, and banish this base and sordid one. Now, um, we've talked about this technique before. This is the technique of making use of impressions, which is talked about mostly by Epictetus. Uh, And the idea, basically, is that you are... In most cases, reacting not to reality, but by your own version of reality that you're that uh, that you generate. Uh, you know, based on superficial um, thoughts and feelings. And so that's that's an impression. Is is this this thing that's layered on top of reality that you're really reacting to instead of reacting to the reality itself? And the technique basically is you catch yourself um, being caught by an impression, you catch yourself being gotten by an impression, you ask it to step aside, and then you ask yourself how you can frame the reality in a way that is either more realistic or more conducive to to right action. If you're interested in how the Stoics apply this technique, then I'll link the episodes below where I talked about it, Uh, but we have a lot to cover today, and uh, I'd like to move on to a new application here. So when I read... I'm reading this book called Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock, and I'm about halfway through. So far, what I've read is, is good. But one of the most the most useful thing is the overall framework of radical acceptance, of being able to sit with and accept your feelings uh, and your thoughts and and to not try to deny them or push them away. Uh, but the most useful technique for doing this that I've read so far in the book is what she calls the sacred pause. And when I read about the sacred pause, I associated it to this technique from Epictetus, and I wanted to read her presentation of it, and then uh, just contrast it a little bit with Epictetus, and then contrast it with what Judaism does. Um, And usually I don't read super long excerpts like this, but I feel like she does a really good job of presenting it, and I kind of want to let her speak for her own uh, idea. Uh, And uh, this is from Radical Acceptance, pages 49 through 53. And uh, as I read, then just think about what you've learned from stoicism about stoicism so far and uh, and and note the, the parallels here in the 1950s, a few highly trained pilots in the U.S. Air Force were set a life or death task to fly at altitudes higher than ever before attempted. Going beyond the Earth's denser atmosphere, they found, much to their horror, that the ordinary laws of aerodynamics no longer existed. As Tom Wolfe describes in The Right Stuff, a plane could skid into a flat spin like a cereal bowl or on a wax Formica counter and then start tumbling, not spinning and diving, but tumbling end over end. The first pilots to face this challenge responded by frantically trying to stabilize their planes, applying correction after correction. The more furiously they manipulated the controls, the wilder the ride became. Screaming helplessly to the ground, what do I do next, they would plunge to their deaths. This tragic drama occurred several times until one of the pilots, Chuck Yeager, inadvertently struck upon a solution. When his plane started tumbling, Yeager was thrown violently around the cockpit and knocked out. Unconscious, he plummeted towards Earth. Seven miles later, the plane re-entered the planet's denser atmosphere, where standard navigation strategies could be implemented. Jaeger came to, studied the craft, and landed safely. He had discovered the only life-saving response that was possible in this desperate situation. Don't do anything. You take your hands off the controls. This solution, as Wolf puts it, was, quote, the only choice you had. It countered all training and even basic survival instincts, but it worked, end quote. In our lives, we often find ourselves in situations we can't control, circumstances in which none of our strategies work. Helpless and distraught, we frantically try to manage what is happening. Our child takes a downward turn in academics, and we issue one threat after another to get him in line. Someone says something hurtful to us, and we strike back quickly or retreat. We make a mistake at work, and we scramble to cover it up or go out of our way to make up for it. We head into emotionally charged confrontations, nervously rehearsing and strategizing. The more we fear failure, the more frenetically our bodies and minds work. We fill our days with continual movement, mental planning and worrying, uh, habitual talking, fixing, scratching, adjusting, phoning, snacking, discarding, buying, looking in the mirror. What would it be like if, right in the midst of this busyness, we were to consciously take our hands off the controls? Chuck Yeager had to go unconscious to interrupt the compulsion to control. What if we were to intentionally stop our mental computations and our rushing around and, for a minute or two, simply pause and notice our inner experience? Learning to pause is the first step in the practice of radical acceptance. A pause is a suspension of activity, a time of temporary disengagement when we are no longer moving toward any goal. Unlike the frantic pilot, we stop asking, what do I do next? The pause can occur in the midst of almost any activity and can last for an instant, for hours, or for seasons of our life. We may take a pause from our ongoing responsibilities by sitting down to meditate. We may pause in the midst of our meditation to let go of thoughts and reawaken our attention to the breath. We may pause by stepping out of daily life to go on a retreat or to spend time in nature or to take a sabbatical. We may pause in a conversation, letting go of what we're about to say, in order to genuinely listen and to be with the other person. We may pause when we feel suddenly moved or delighted or saddened, allowing the feelings to play through the heart. In a pause, we simply discontinue whatever we are doing, thinking, talking, walking, writing, planning, worrying, eating, and become wholeheartedly present, attentive, and often physically still. You might try it now. Stop reading and sit there, doing no thing, and simply notice what you are experiencing. I did not plan to do that, but (laughs) otherwise I would have announced it. Okay, going on in the book, a pause is by nature time-limited. We resume our activities, but we do so with increased presence and more ability to make choices. In the pause before sinking our teeth into a chocolate bar, for instance, we might recognize the excited tingle of anticipation, and perhaps a background cloud of guilt and self-judgment. We may then choose to eat the chocolate, fully savoring the taste sensations, or we might decide to skip the chocolate and instead go out for a run. When we pause, we don't know what will happen next, but by disrupting our habitual behaviors, we open to the possibility of new and creative ways of responding to our wants and fears. Of course, there are times when it is not appropriate to pause. If our child is running toward a busy street, we don't pause. Uh, you know, when one is about to strike us, we don't just stand there resting in the moment. Rather, we quickly find a way to defend ourselves. If we are about to miss a flight, we race towards the gate. But much of our driven pace and habitual controlling in daily life does not involve. Sur- sorry, does not serve surviving and certainly not thriving. It arises from a free-floating anxiety about something being wrong or not enough. Even when our fear arises in the face of actual failure, loss, or like the military pilots, death, our instinctive tensing and and striving are often ineffectual and unwise. Taking our hands off the controls and pausing is an opportunity to clearly see the wants and fears that are driving us. During the moments of a pause, we become conscious of how the feeling that something is missing or wrong keeps us leaning into the future or on our way elsewhere, somewhere else. This gives us a fundamental choice in how we respond. We can continue our futile attempts at managing our experience, or we can meet our vulnerability and the wisdom of radical acceptance. Uh, And then she mentions this incident when she was in a desert sanctuary where she had a a horribly verbally abusive situation by one of her mentors. So she says, during my pause in the desert sanctuary, I began to see how utterly stuck I was in the stories and suffering of trance. By staying put and not occupying myself with other activities, I faced the shame and fears that I had been running from for years. In fact, pausing and accepting the intensity of my suffering was the only way I could have released the grip of trance. Often the moment when we most need to pause is exactly when it feels the most intolerable to do so. Pausing in a fit of anger or overwhelmed by sorrow or filled with desire may be the last thing we want to do. Like the high altitude pilots, letting go of the controls seems to run counter to our basic and instinctual ways... um, Hold on, there's a uh, typo here. And instinctual ways of getting what we want, maybe. Pausing can feel like falling helplessly through space. We have no idea of what will happen. We fear we might be engulfed by the rawness of our rage or grief or desire. Yet without opening to the actual experience of the moment, radical acceptance is not possible. Charlotte Jocko Beck, Zen teacher and author, teaches that the quote-unquote secret of spiritual life is the capacity to quote, return to that which we have spent a lifetime hiding from, to rest in the bodily experience of the present moment, even if it is a feeling of being humiliated, a feeling of abandonment, of unfairness. Through the sacred art of pausing, we develop the capacity to stop hiding, to stop running away from our experience. We begin to trust in our natural intelligence, in our naturally wise heart, in our capacity to open to whatever arises. Like awakening from a dream, in the moment of our pausing, our trance recedes and radical acceptance becomes possible. All right, that was uh, the end of the long excerpt. I hope it was worthwhile to hear her saying it in her own words. Um, so let's compare Epictetus's use of uh, the technique of uh, of. Making use of impressions, and then this technique of the of the the um, the sacred pause. So, both of them involve stopping and taking note of the fact of your own experience. For Epictetus, it involves evaluating the way that you're framing something and asking yourself if it is realistic and good, and if there's another way to frame it. For Tara Brock, it involves um, uh, it involves um, uh, what do you call it? Hold on just a i I'm getting a phone call, and I just want to. Uh, okay. Hold on a second. Um, for Tara Brock, it involves, um, what do you call it? Uh, pausing and just listening to your inner experience and thoughts and, uh, and then, and, and then going wherever they take you or, or not, or, or then continuing on in what you were deciding, but just the main emphasis is on, on taking note of your inner experience. And I think both are useful and both have their place, but both of them rely on that same technique of just, initiating the pause and pulling yourself out of the experience to to stop for a second. How does Judaism use this? So in Judaism, I think, or where is the place for this in Judaism? So the first thing I thought of really was from her candy bar example, which is she suggests doing the sacred pause before eating a candy bar and just thinking about the experience you're going to have and then making the decision whether to eat it or not eat it or not making the decision, but allowing yourself to be open to whatever decision comes from your pause. So when, when do we pause? We pause before we make a bracha on food, you know, um, or a bracha on a mitzvah. And I think that the two techniques can be combined, meaning that how many of us make mindless brachos? You know, you just, you pause, you make a bracha and you don't think about what you're saying and then you just eat. But if you pause, took note of your own experience and your own feelings then, from that place of genuine feeling and awareness of what's going on inside of you, made the bracha in which you recognize God as the cause of this food, and the cause of your sustenance, and the cause of everything, I think you would get more out of the bracha, you know? So too with tefillah, we talked about this in an earlier episode, the Hasidim Harishonim, the early pious ones, would pause, literally, for an hour, and then they would start davening. And I talked about my reasons about why I thought that they were doing that, Uh, and, uh, and I did my experiment in which it actually worked and helped. So that's another instance of pausing. And then just in general, I mean, with halakha, halakha itself makes you pause before you do actions in order to consider what halakha demands. And I think that, that even though halakha is guiding you towards specific ideas and specific character traits and specific, uh, actions of justice, if you can afford the time to pause, take note of your own inner experience, and then, um... And then what do you call it? And then from there engage the halakha. I think you would gain more from the halakha itself. If only because you are stopping to become conscious first, you know. Uh, it almost reminds me of the the you know the Pasukun Tehillim of sur Me rava ase tov. Of first you have to turn away from evil and then you can do good. Um, uh, uh, and in this case, evil is too strong of a word, but turn away from mindlessness Get it and, and and by by becoming mindful and then you pursue the good of the mitzvah. Okay, so um, I'm sure there's much more to think about, and I'm still you know experimenting with this technique right now. Uh, but I just wanted to note the similarities uh, between Stoicism, uh, Judaism, and then this technique from Tara Brock about the sacred pause. Um, I had to move into another room because there's a loud leaf blower outside, and uh, my outro is on that. So I guess I'll try to say it from memory. Uh, that's it for today's episode. If you gain from what you've learned here today uh, and would like to support my production of even more to content, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.rubbishneweiss... Wait. See, I don't even know the thing. Link is in the description. Um, www.patreon.com slash That's what it is. Um, and uh, thank you to my listeners for listening, and thank you to my supporters, my patrons... Is that is that the line? For making my making it possible for me to make my Torah content available and accessible to everyone. You know what I want to say. Uh, And that's the important thing. Uh, Okay, until next time.